What do you consider to be unusual? Oh, I don't know. What do you recommend? Hey everybody, welcome to the third installment of the CuffCast, a resource of all films underground, weird, and fantastic. I am your host and lead programmer of Cuff, Cameron McGowan, and in today's installment we had the pleasure of speaking with superstar producer Heather Buckley and one of the brilliant minds behind TIFF Midnight Madness, Colin Geddes. Hopefully everybody in Alberta had a good cuff. We just wrapped up our 18th festival, Legal to Drink in the United States of America. It was a great one, albeit virtually. Hopefully next year we can party in person again. Rhett, what were some standouts for you? What'd you, what'd you see in like? Well, I missed seeing Shakespeare's Shitstorm. That's, that's a mouthful to say every time, but I missed seeing that at Fantasia when it last played, and so I was so glad to finally be able to see it here, albeit not on the big screen, but nice to see friend of the podcast, Cody Cook, featured in there, and it was a, it was a ton of fun. Yeah, it's definitely one of the best trauma films to date. And uh, Lloyd keeps getting better. He does. This might be his swan song. I hope not. I hope Lloyd keeps getting to make movies. But Shakespeare's Shitstorm is definitely an amazing trauma title. So if that gets you juicy, definitely check it out. Um, but I want to use this opportunity to talk a bit about the importance of film festivals. And I mean, I don't want to wax my own car because I do work for a film festival, but I work for a film festival because I feel they're extremely important to film culture in general, especially in today's current climate where there's unlimited movies on streaming, but how do you know what to watch? How do you know which of them are good? Because let's be honest here, I'd say 70% of them are probably not worth watching. And Netflix doesn't really do a good job of championing the cooler independent acquisitions that they get. It's kind of a nasty thing you see happen. Each year at Sundance and South by Southwest, there'll be this great movie that people might not have heard about that will get scooped up by Netflix. And Netflix won't want to do a film festival run with it. And sorry, not to just put blame on Netflix, there's other uh, streaming services as well that will forbid these films from doing a film festival run because they want the maximum exposure or whatever for their launch on their streaming service. But then they just dump it on the streaming service and hope that it will naturally find its audience based on what, a thumbnail? And uh, a very loud 10 second teaser? And where do people find these movies? There's a film that comes to mind that I loved and saw at Fantastic Fest called The Platform, that Netflix bought. And it was not even recommended to me on Netflix afterwards. I had no idea this film was on Netflix. I adored this film. I would have told everybody to watch this film if I'd have known it was on Netflix. I believe these films need a film festival release to breathe to find their audience, to become the next It Follows, or your next, you need people to talk about your movie. Yeah, and I mean, back in the olden days, like if you were to just make a film, like getting the film, like literal film was so expensive, like just to make one, you, you'd probably be able to get an audience for it or get it released somewhere and people would see it, right? But now when everyone can make a film, you need these places that can curate films and, and build up an appreciation over time with a lot of passionate 
movie lovers who will be able to champion those movies to prop them up, right? So And separate them from the crowd, like you say. Yeah, so film festivals are definitely a good avenue for that as they have a local audience. Local audience who might not be informed of what the current cutting-edge films are because, you know, they're leading fulfilling lives with their family and have better things to do with their time. Uh, but the, these movies need the word of mouth so that the paying audience, the average person, knows they exist. And film festivals are a great way to do that. But I'm also really loving what's happening with certain streaming services like Shudder, which our guest Colin Geddes programs for, where they do just take a select few films. Some of these services will only release 10 films a month. So when you look to your new releases, you see everything that they've put out. And it'll have a trailer, it'll have the marketing materials. But I still believe that it's up to the people of the world that when you see these movies that people may not have heard of on a streaming service, tell them. Make lists. The best movies on Netflix you might not have heard of. The best movies on Prime you might not have heard of. The best movies on Tubi you might not have heard of. Because a lot of these movies just die on these streaming services. And without getting an audience on these streaming services, some of them may not even end up on physical media at some point and may just get lost. And I'm talking more about specifically about new films, current genre films, 2020 films. Even old films though, I mean, just like all the streaming sites, they to maybe hide the limited amount of films they actually have. They put them in all these weirdly sorted categories, right? But you can't just go and search by something by year or by title or anything. Like, you know, it's very, very difficult to access the libraries of all these things. Whereas if you're in a video store or, you know, at a film festival where you can look at the listing of everything there, it's really easy to kind of see what you might be missing but there's a lot of stuff on those sites it becomes overwhelming and you you miss out on so many titles just because they're not sorted by the algorithm that you might have watched by accidentally clicking on a title and it's assuming you want to watch period british films forever or something like that you know not everything's available on these sites a lot of the films we'll talk about on this podcast might not be available on these streaming sites so physical media lives forever digital is temporary so buy up those blu-rays and dvds don't let your partners or parents make you feel bad about your dusty ass collection. It has value. Yep, support the filmmakers and support the, the art of preserving film so it's not this commodity that you just watch and forget about and, and not think about anymore. Like something that you like enough to keep and hold and, and look over and review and study and understand. And uh, that's a great note to kick off our interview with Senpai. Colin Geddes. Colin Geddes was the man who made Tiff Midnight Madness what it is. Helped discover Eli Roth, Takashi Miike, Tony Ja, Donnie Yen, countless others. And this man has been a champion of celebrating the curation of film culture for as long as I've been alive. And during this interview, it actually dawned on me how much Colin Geddes has actually shaped my film taste without me actually knowing it. So without further ado... Colin Geddes. Thank you for joining us, Colin. Hello, lovely to be here. So I first want to start off about your rich legacy and reputation as being one of Canada's coolest film nerds with a physical film collection that at one point Quentin Tarantino was even jealous of. <laughs> what is your superhero origin story, sir? My superhero origin, I'm blushing here. My superhero origin story was always had parents who encouraged me 
watching or, or just, I guess they shared with me like weird and wonderful films and they shared, shared stuff with me offbeat. I remember my dad and I going to uh, the local art theater, like kind of on-campus art theater at Queens University in Kingston. And I saw Eraserhead, Seven Samurai, like those screenings as, as a high school kid growing up in the country too. This was before obviously the internet. Like first it was laser discs, then video stores. There wasn't a theater around me because I lived in a small little village, but I read a lot about films. I read, I read so much about films and it was years sometimes before I actually got to see the films that I'd read about. Yeah, I'd go see films with my dad. We'd go to the drive-in and we'd talk about this stuff. Steady diet of like Marvel and DC comic books, eerie and creepy. And then when I moved to Toronto for college, I went to school for graphic design. Suddenly I was in Toronto and it was just like renting even more stuff, going to the, uh, the, the Bloor Cinema, uh, hitting the rep theaters and the Toronto International Film Festival. Went to the first year of the Midnight Madness program my first year in Toronto for college. Uh, and I think I saw like Hellraiser 2 and, oh geez, what was that? I've seen photos of that, of that screen. They're on the dock. It was so, it was so crazy. But what happened was I fell in with a bunch of guys in Toronto. There was like a really kind of burgeoning, industrious B-movie fanzine scene. We're talking like 1989, 1990. For some reason, Toronto had this concentration of movie fanzines. I contributed a couple of the issues and I wanted to do a zine on my own. I was going to school for graphic design. I'm like, look, I'll do the layout. This will be a portfolio piece. Like I can do this, but everyone had their own kind of niche. One guy knew all about spaghetti Westerns. One guy knew all about Italian giallo films. And I knew little bits of it. I didn't really know what to kind of focus on. And then at the Toronto National Film Festival, I ended up seeing the production of Choi Hark's, uh, he was the producer on it, Chinese Ghost Story 2 by Ching Su Tung. And that, blew my mind because i mean at the time i just wasn't seeing american stuff north american stuff or even european stuff at the time which was exciting when it came to genre films for the early 90s i'm like eh, not not my favorite period for for genre cinema but then when i discovered the stuff from hong kong in the back catalog it just blew my mind and i realized i could go to chinatown and rent these videos and most of them had english subtitles I mean, it was daunting going into a video store and I don't speak Chinese and they didn't speak much English. And I'd go in with like, okay, I like Chai Yun Fat. Chai Yun Fat's on this box. I'm going to watch this film. Oh, it's directed by Ringo Lam. Okay, here's a Samuel Hung film. And like I branched uh, Jackie Chan. Like I just started learning about all of it. And got excited again. Oh, so excited. It was, And it was like a jigsaw puzzle. Like you just like, because you're just- Collecting. This is together. Yeah. Well, not collecting, but it was a jigsaw. It was about- who made what right and as soon as you're like it's like oh this film was produced by this guy this film was written by this guy oh i mean just the network of action and then yeah exactly and you like, see oh, their so brothers and- this yeah just like and there was really hardly any information about it in english at the time there's an australian fanzine called fatal visions which had a column about it there was actually a big scene in the uk uk there was like stuff kind of in english over there about it there's it a kind of a burgeoning scene but i just said oh, okay like let me let me do my fanzine on on hong kong films and i lucked out with a contributor that i a guy that i met julian von fried who is one of the founders one of the first programmers at fantasia so my first issue he gave it to me and my first issue i had an interview with john Wu. and and my fanzine i mean my wife will correct me because like when i say fanzine it sounds like a little stapled 
like photocopied thing. Well, it was photocopied, it was stapled, but it was like 70 pages. Like it was thick. <laughs> nice. And, and what I did was, uh, and I had capsule reviews of all kinds of films, but the important thing that I wanted to do was like, I wanted this to be a guide. So if you went to Chinatown, you didn't have to struggle like me if you wanted to find these films. Because the problem, the problem with Hong Kong films is the English title is so far removed from what the Chinese title is. Okay, an example is John Woo's The Killer. It's called The Killer in English. The translation of the film from Chinese roughly translates to a pair of blood splattered heroes. <laughs> okay, so if you went in, they, they didn't know these films by the English names. So I had in the back, I had an index of all the films that I'd reviewed with the Chinese title in Chinese characters and the English title. And That's that was just a great resource. So people could go in like, I want to watch this and get the film. Did you get a cut from some of these uh, shops in Toronto? <laughs> I think maybe they gave me a cut of late fees. That's, that's probably it. Um, <laughs> it was always a daunting thing, thing too, going to these shops and they never understood why this white guy wanted to watch these films. They like, and they were like, Oh, but these films are in Chinese. I'm like, they have subtitles. Like they, they were even oblivious to the fact that the films had English subtitles. Um, and I'd run into guys. I ran into uh, a couple of guys once in the video store, and sure enough, they had a copy of my fanzine folded up in their back pocket with the index. Um, by doing this, and I did mail order around the world. I think I probably sold around 500 copies of it. And uh, I was able to get a press pass for the Toronto Film Festival because of my fanzine. And so suddenly I didn't have to watch, I didn't have to pay for watching films anymore. And I was on a different side of the industry. I did a second issue where I had an exclusive interview that I did on the phone with Jackie Chan when he was shooting Rumble in the Bronx in Vancouver. So yeah, so I just did this fanzine. And at the time, like I meant it to be my portfolio piece, but I never really got a job in the graphic design industry. I just started, I started working in restaurants, started like kind of bussing tables and bartending and just like hospitality work. Not, not the greatest, but in my spare time, I always did what I loved which was watching these movies and writing about these movies and sharing these movies. When did you start buying them for your own personal collection or forgive me if you were getting to that? Oh yeah. That's, I mean, that's a whole, <laughs> that's a whole other chapter. I never started buying films myself. That's the thing because I was writing about something that there wasn't a lot of English press on it put me in a really good spot. And I remember giving a copy of my issue to Guillermo del Toro when he came to Toronto for Cronus and he, he's like, Oh my God. And he already knew all these directors, oh, Troy Hark, yeah, John Woo, oh, it's like, and he's like, I gave him my magazine and he was like blown away by it. And I mean, that's great because now that's, that's actually because of my fanzine, that's still a friendship that exists today. Programmers at the film festival, uh, notably Noah Cowan, who was the programmer of the Midnight Madness selection, started paying attention to me, started coming to me for advice. There was some screening of a Dario Argento film at the, the Bloor and Dario Gento was kind of like getting swarmed by fans and autographs and needed to get out of there. And somehow, I guess, I jumped into the fray and helped him get out to his car or whatever. And Noah was like, yeah, that's when I saw that you had something different, that you were paying attention to other things, not just being a fan. So Noah Cowan was asking me for advice about possible midnight films from Hong Kong. And we'd go to Chinatown together to see stuff and scout things. And then he asked me to be co-programmer in 97. So I helped program half the films with him, started introducing the films, worked with him. And then the following year, he gave me the whole program. So I, I took over programming duties for Midnight Madness in 1998. I mean, there, there were some other things in between there. 
I also worked for Golden Harvest for an endeavor called Golden Classics Cinema, which was a uh, rep theater of Asian films that was in Chinatown. And we had like a Jackie Chan retrospective, a John Woo retrospective, early works of Akira Kurosawa. And that was like a year and a half. And so that taught me even more about kind of the film industry, running movie theaters, promotion, marketing. And, and I personally notice a ripple effect hearing all of this now. Growing up in Calgary, Alberta, I would watch the Drambui Showcase Review. I was hoping to see some skin, but I would often get Bride with White Hair, The Killer, obviously, or John Woo's martial arts films, and I would like them even more. And I would always record them. And I would hear that in Toronto, you could see these movies on the big screen. So it even had a ripple effect pre-internet to myself. So uh, did you start to see that happening within Toronto? And again, Showcase Drambui Review being broadcast across Canada on Friday and Saturday nights. Did you start to notice an influence on Hong Kong cinema and how it was consumed in Toronto or even North America? In Toronto, for sure. I mean, I mean, the other thing that I was doing on my own, like after I stopped doing the Golden Classic Cinema, I was like, look, I know where to get these film prints from. Like I know the distributors and I know how to market. So I would rent a movie theater. And the, the, the first movie theater I rented in Toronto was a, a movie theater called the Metro Theater, which was an adults-only porn theater. And it was the cheapest place I could rent. And I could get that cinema for the whole night on a weekend for 250 bucks for two shows. And so I booked the film, made posters, put them on telephone poles, sold tickets at Suspect Video, and had sold out shows. One and one of the shows that I did, I did, a, I had a, I found actually an English dubbed print of 36 Chambers of Shaolin, and I did two screenings of it. All of them were sold out, but the first show, Quentin Tarantino came to the screening. He was in town. Mira Servino was shooting replacement killers, and he showed up with Mira Servino, and they watched this kung fu film in a stinky old porn theater. Mira Servino wasn't too happy about that. That was that was clearly a relationship that was not going to last. And I kind of helped grow this kind of cult around Hong Kong films because of these screens that I was doing like monthly, this monthly film screening series that I did. And I would show like Samuel Hung films. I mean, it would be, it eventually became something called Kung Fu Fridays. I would show basically anything that was wild and fun and action oriented from Asia. And then it's interesting because flash to years later when I'm doing Midnight Madness and I show the film SPL, Kill Zone, uh, the Donnie Yen Sam Hung action film by Wilson Yip. Like maybe, was it 2007? That was the year I lived in Toronto. I saw that and Inside. Yep, that was a good year. So what, happened, what happened then was like when Sam Hung came out for the introduction, he got a standing ovation. And I realized... It's because I educated this audience over the years on who Samuel Hung was. Yep. So it was really interesting to be able to see kind of like fruits of my labor. So yeah, so I mean, I was curating Hong Kong films for uh, audiences on this kind of like very small independent scale. I mean, the screenings that I would have, like there were like 100, 150 people. And then at the same time, I was working at Suspect Video. And then I was also working as a programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival doing Midnight Madness. So I believed in this stuff and I stood up on a soapbox and I started talking about it. And I just did it. Like, I was the guy who was like, oh, oh no, you've got to see this. I would like drag my friends to Chinatown to see a film and they were so reluctant. And then when they would watch one of these films, 
they'd come out like, oh my God, that was so fun. Can we come to the next one? But it's just like following my passion. It's like enthusiasm over expertise will win every time. I like to pride myself on being a conduit. My enthusiasm and excitement can be contagious to get other people on board and they discover it on their own. In the modern age of streaming and digital filmmaking, where there's lots of great movies that all get eaten up by a distributor and ideally sold to a streaming service and just dumped and lost in the shuffle. So there's a glut of information on the internet about these movies if you want it, and a glut of content on these digital streaming services. How do people effectively stand out to help curate through the noise? And that's, yeah, that's the thing. It's what's missing through all of this stuff is curation. So I, I do work, I mean, yeah, obviously full disclosure, and it was going to come to this, is that I do work as a consultant for, for Shudder. I worked with them in the beginning before they even launched. My wife and I together actually were working. My wife, uh, Katarina Gligorovich. We worked with Shudder. We helped select the films uh, for their library. We wrote the copy. And Shudder kind of saw that there was a problem within the landscape, a curation of good horror films. I think it was just like, oh, why isn't there a streaming service for horror films? Well, let's do it. And then they just kind of worked out that, like, well, we need to find people who understand horror films and understand what good horror films are. Because at that time, and still with Netflix, it's like they buy horror content and just throw it in a corner, knock yourself out, kids. Here's a bunch of horror films. So we wanted to kind of like with, with Shutter, it's like, look, let's make things that the fans are going to realize that there's quality behind the decisions and we're not just buying junk. Like, look, I'm going to say there's a reason why there's not any full moon films on the site. Sorority Babes is on there and I watched, enjoyed the Bob, Joe Bob episode a couple times. <laughs> well, on the, on the Joe Bob, it's like, it's a, uh, there's, there's a line there. Joe, I do understand your point though. I was, didn't mean to be contradictory. I just, I, I quite enjoy that episode. It's the same, the same with trauma. There's no trouble yeah. in there. But there's a lot of international movies, a lot of uh, intellectual horror, some fun ones too. Yeah, it's there's something, there's... there's yeah. And lots of Argento. Something for everyone there. Giallo is properly represented. Yeah. Cool. So, uh, so film festivals and curatorial streaming services are definitely helping shape the palettes of future film-going audiences. But, but you've, you've kind of hit a point that there is, within the market, within the landscape, like, yeah, stuff just gets lost. Yeah. And then it goes further than that too, because a lot of people don't realize like how hard it is to get streaming rights sometimes and where these rights lay. An interesting thing is that there's differences between the uh, US library and the Canadian library for Shutter. One of the things which happened early on was we couldn't get Inside and Martyrs in the US but we could get it in Canada. Inside and Martyrs were Weinstein Library, and that was basically kind of all locked down. But up here in Canada, that had been acquired by E1. So it was really nice. funny that like we had a bunch of titles in Canada that they couldn't get in the States. Yeah, we're used to the opposite here. Yeah, but there's, yeah, there's so much stuff, which is just like it plays at a festival, and sometimes it doesn't, especially now, like it suddenly doesn't make that deal Films get lost. And then when they do hop, hop up on a, a service, like there's no promotion around them. No, there, there's no interviews. It's just in the queue now. It's just on suggested now. And especially when it comes to, to, to international films, Netflix isn't going to go out of their way to give like press to like a Spanish language director. Unless it got nominated for an Oscar. Exactly. The machine is broken and there's a space for 
curators. And that's something that we try to fix regularly at Shutter to great success. But it's just like across the board for any kind of film. There's just so many good things that are just getting lost in the cracks, the digital, the, the digital cracks. One thing that it looks like Shutter's bringing to light for the first time is that Romero film. What is it, the amusement park? Yeah, and were you part of that? <laughs> I can't. I can't take any credit on that one. That one, I think, all came through basically kind of like a really good partnership with Yellow Veil. Shout out to Yellow Veil. Yeah, shout out to them. We work with them at Cuff all the time. Great, great um, films. So yeah, and I mean, look, where else would that film go? Yeah, exactly. Where else does Joe Bob go? Yeah, there's no good, there wouldn't have been a good home for that film. And we see that happen all too often. So, yeah, it's sad, but more and more streaming services are popping up that have great curation. Um, there's one called Spam Flicks that unfortunately is called Spam Flicks, but the content on the streaming service, absolutely phenomenal. It's great modern Japanese. Stuff. Even Tubi. Tubi feels like going in a suspect video sometimes or just like you know it's like there's just so much good fun random things on there every single interview we've done for the podcast so far yeah. someone has shouted out Tubi. yeah but i mean look i found the third part of the easy money trilogy from sweden which is like just, uh, really yeah, yeah. great and it's like oh great because like i showed the first one in vanguard i think i showed the first one at tiff and i'd seen the second one but i never got around to seeing the third one i'm like oh it's on Tubi. perfect surprising so, but you still need to know this movie exists before searching for it on Tubi. So I do hope that more people will treat these streaming services as a legitimate way to watch the movies and to let folks know when there's cool stuff up there. So on the podcast, we'll definitely shout out when we know something's available on streaming. All right. So let's backtrack now, Colin. You're programming Midnight Madness. You're probably high on adrenaline constantly getting to interact with some people you've idolized your entire life but also launching the careers of folks like Tony Jaa, Takashi Miike, Eli Roth. How do you balance staying focused on finding new talent while immersed in the excitement of premiere talent? I, I just picked what I liked. Like I just kind of went with my gut. I always liked finding films that were not American, honestly. I really always tried to introduce as many kind of voices from around the world as I could. Like when I showed Baskin, I'm like, yay, finally I've shown a film from Turkey. God, dude, I just watched that movie again two weeks ago. I think it's a modern classic. I even, I messaged Red, I tweeted him, I said, this movie in 30 years, we're going to go, Baskin, motherfucking Baskin is still so good. And then what do you think? Like, I'm trying to think which one I was boasting about. I think was it like the Raid? It was like Indonesia. It was like, I was kind of like, you know what? I, I guarantee you, this is probably the most amount of people in one room in America who watched a film from Indonesia. I mean, yeah, I mean, the, the Tony Jaw thing was like overnight. Like, you would have not been able to mention an actor from Thailand. Overnight, boom, we helped make Tony Jaw. So you just just program what you like, man. So even if, even if Premier Talent's making it, make sure it's good. Make sure, like, just always be making sure that they're good movies. It's got to be good. And look, and they look, there's directors that I'd turned down. And there are directors who are like, look, I turned you down like three times and finally you made a film that worked for me. How do you handle the opposite? Where you've programmed their work, perhaps become close and then have to reject later work of theirs? It's tough. It was always tough. Always. Like if, if the film didn't quite work, I mean, a case in point for me would have been Mike Flanagan's Oculus I picked, which I just thought was like stunning and just like really fresh. And then his follow-up film 
and it's just like uh it wasn't fresh enough for me it just didn't i was like it didn't work and so yeah, it was not, it's not always once you were in, didn't mean you were in for life. I'm sure you saw so many films that didn't quite work for Midnight, but that you wanted to show at the festival. How does that lead to the creation of one of my favorite of your creations, the Vanguard program at TIFF? Yeah, Vanguard was really, I mean, it was kind of a rocky, not a rocky start, but it was just like, it was Noah Cowan who started Vanguard. And then they kind of passed it over to me and I was the, the curator of that. And it was just like finding films that were just like Midnight Madness was a certain caliber of film, a certain type of kind of crazy, extreme excitement. Okay. But Vanguard was more, and I don't want to use the word because it's overused, but elevated. I would almost look at it was like, look, you start with Midnight Madness and then you grow up and you move into Vanguard. So it was films that straddled the line of art house and genre. Because I saw X Drummer import export, you blew my mind that year, yeah, man. It was it was a great variety of stuff. X Drummer is still one of my favorites. I love it. It was just crazy that I got to go to a Cineplex and see someone shitting on a camera lens uh, in a packed house, <laughs> like with two old ladies beside me, seeing one of the most subversive movies I still have ever seen. Yeah, it was a really it was a really fun program. R.I.P. And I, yeah, I've got regrets. They didn't really understand the nature of the program. And when it was gone, there were a lot of programmers, a lot of filmmakers who were like, well, now where do I go? Well, that was going to be my follow-up question. Where do these films end up now? Exactly. And that's, again, it's like the strength of curation. And I was always kind of butting against heads where it, with, with that program where it's like they didn't quite understand what it was. But I'm like, the audience, they understand. The audience gets it. Yeah, I was living hand to mouth and I made sure to see as many Vanguard and Midnight movies as humanly possible that year and every screening was awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Colin. Uh, what are you working on right now? Outside of doing Shudder, my wife and I run uh, Ultra Great Pictures, which is a consulting service for films, uh, genre films specifically. So we help get films seen. Uh, we help make films better. So we work on films from script to premiere we do script reads uh we offer feedback we do marketing strategy festival strategy sales strategy and so that's that's what we do and you can find out more information about that at ultra8.ca you can also find us do a search for ultra 8 pictures on instagram and you know the usual stuff we have a really exciting new project that we're working on now with three different filmmakers we just did a pitch to a filmmaker whose work you totally know. He's inspired all of you. He's won two Oscars and his people really liked it. And they're going to be, we're going to be pitching it to him directly. So hopefully that will be something really exciting. And if it goes through, it's going to be a game changer. That's what they call it. That's what the kids call it, right? A game changer. <laughs> it's going to be a game changer. I can't jinx it, but basically my wife and I, we like helping filmmakers find their audience. And the important thing about this, and this is, could be something we could always talk about again on a future episode. The important thing is with your film, knowing that the film that you're about to shoot, the script that you've got, knowing that there is an audience for it, knowing that you're doing something different, or even if you're not doing something different, knowing where it's going to end up at the end of the day. Yeah, it's such an important part of the process. Don't think about that before they go to camera. It's so true. And I'd definitely love to have you back. So thanks for that offer. You may regret it later. So thanks again, Colin. <laughs> Not at all. And we'll Good chat job. soon, right. man. All right. Cheers. Take care.
<laughs> now, Mr. Rhett Miller with the Golden Boys Report. <laughs> hey, Rhett, what a, we got to remind folks what the Golden Boys are. Uh, Rhett and I are honorary Golden Boys, but essentially what it is is a bunch of older nerds whose uh, partners are sick and tired of watching junk movies with them, so now we all get together to watch them <laughs> with each other. And we often subject uh, our friends to the films that even they don't want to watch, but it's like a rite of passage to have to watch and endure them. So every week we get our picks, and so... But they're not always endurance tests. This past week, it was a double feature of gems, I'd say. Uh, I would say too, and we wanted to feature the great films of PM Entertainment, which get no love, like not even on the boutique scene. I don't know where the rights are or something, but there are no PM Entertainment releases. And, and they made some big movies. Anna Nicole Smith is in some of their movies. Oh yeah, Christopher Lambert, Mark DeCosta, Robert Patrick. Yeah, like they Corey had. Corey Feldman. They had. Yeah, Corey Haim. Yeah, they had the everyone, and they were like sort of like a, a cheaper, weirder canon in, in a lot of ways. But they really ratcheted up the action, and so we picked a double feature here this last week of two Gary Daniels films, kind of like another like a lower rent action hero guy that you probably have hardly ever heard of. But uh, these two films are just like some of the best action you've ever seen, both by Spiro Rosados who later went on to do all the Fast and Furious films, but we're talking about Rage and Recoil. Two movies where I always confuse the titles and plots. <laughs> yeah, there's probably, and you go on IMDb and there's like six or seven Rage, six or seven Yeah, recoils. I think one, one of them is about a mobs, one has mobsters, and one's like, he's a substitute teacher. <laughs> a kindergarten teacher, Kindergarten teacher, those... Like, so what's the difference between these two movies, right? <laughs> now I can't remember. So yeah, Rage, he's this kindergarten teacher who's, whose family is, is harmed and then he must jump into action. And he's like literally like teaching small children. And then about an hour later in the chronology of the story, he's jumping from a semi truck that's exploding, rolling around taking a machine gun and just gunning down 50 people. Like, where did this guy get the training? I don't care. It's amazing action. And then Recoil, his family is also harmed in that, but this one's a little... But mobsters. But mobsters, mobsters this time. Yeah, yeah. I don't even know who the bad guy is in, uh, in Rage, but anyway, both of them have some of the most insane stunts you'll ever see. So there's the, the big... 20-minute long car chases. Yeah. The, Start of recoil is like 25 minutes, I believe, of just a long car chase, bank heist. Like it's kind of like doing the heat bank heist, but then it goes to the next degree of like motorcycle car. It was chase. crazy. There was one moment where they drive into a dead end, and all of the golden boys were like, "Okay, this is where the 15 minute car chase ends." Nope, homeboy on the motorbike just turns right back around and jumps over the car, keeps going. And then it gets even better. Then they do this thing where the car jumps and it jumps literally so high they must have missed their mark. It takes out like a, a light post. <laughs> yeah, that was and not And the light post starts to explode and like... You like you're you're just surprised nobody died making this. That's what every single PM Entertainment movie I've watched. That's been the mantra. I'm surprised nobody died yeah. making this. All bets are off. So. And I actually like Eric Daniels. He's like uh, Australian everyday dude. He's like Chuck Norris if Chuck Norris wasn't a piece of shit racist Confederate dude. <laughs> Chuck Norris and Michael Dudikoff because he's got like the handsome kind of yeah, quieter he's, he's quality. Handsome. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, they're. 
both two wild ones. If you can't see those, uh, you know, check out other PM stuff. But both of them are on Prime Video. I think they're on Tubi as well, maybe. They might be on Tubi, but we know for a fact they're on Prime Video. So you can watch those tonight. Definitely grab some beers, burn some bones to those ones. Call over the friends. It was a great night. And set the timers for both those action scenes because you'll be amazed at how long those things go. Because so many movies, especially low-budget ones, they have got a few big stunt pieces that they have and then they stop, right? And they get into a long, lengthy dialogue scene. Both of these movies are just kind of like one action scene after another and it never lets up. So definitely recommended the Gary Daniels duology of rage and recoil. That's been the Golden Boys Report with Rhett Miller. <laughs> <laughs> Rhett, uh, I buy too many movies. I think I share your sickness. But, you know, I love owning these. I love having this collection I can go back to and see a piece of history. And what I really love about DVDs and Blu-rays are the special features. And I always wanted to know how you nail down the people for these. How, you, how do you find someone that hasn't acted in 30 years? How do you find someone that might not want to talk about this movie, might be someone ashamed of it? <laughs> so I've always been fascinated in the production of Blu-ray special features. I'm sure you have been too used to review DVDs for a website. Yeah, when DVD and even Blu-ray were in their infancy, it seemed like extras were just something that was cobbled together and just not thought of. And you'd just be lucky to get some footage or it'd be like some really poorly shot interview with like a, you know, a DV camera on a tripod improperly framed. But, you know, as you get into it, and certainly now, especially like we're in the golden age of extras in terms of like the people making them, right? Like now I get excited when I see an extra and I'll see like red shirt pictures before it. I know this is going to be a good interview because I know the people behind it. I know what they're they're getting at. And like kind of all the boutique labels that really have these stable of people that they're working with to make the extras. And, you know, you sort of understand that it's not just a fly by night thing, that these are people who are devoting their lives to like tracking people down and getting all the extras that we need so yeah and one of these brilliant people is miss heather buckley who is the coolest person you will ever see at a film festival whenever i see heather at a film festival this is her kingdom she dominates it and she dominates it with grace and empathy she's uh, very generous with her time and information and uh, this was such a great interview and it really shined a spotlight on what it takes to actually make these special features and why they're historically important. So I do hope you enjoy. With us, we have Uber producer Heather Buckley of Black Mansion. Welcome to the CuffCast, my friend. Hello there. So, Heather, I know you primarily for making some excellent special features, but uh, I know you do oh so much more. What else, what else do you do on top of interviewing some people that we want to hear cool stories from? Well, I do interview people. I coordinate shoots if I can't be there in person because we shoot all over the world for DVD supplements. And I pr help produce feature films. Including The Ranger. The Ranger and the Al Adamson doc would be my my two features. One's a narrative and one's a doc. And Both excellent. Through that journey, I amassed a slate of 11 films in one series that I call Black Mansion. 
And so it's a studio because my interest is in uh, fundraising and platforming voices and also securing IP. Fantastic. And can you talk about uh, the ethos of Black Mansion? Well, Black Mansion Films is almost like the end of a punk show where everybody's woke up on stage to sing. So we want all voices, all people, all stories, because when there is a little Heather out in the world reading Fangoria, Gorezone, listening to punk rock music, being very weird, reading philosophy, all these people, all these, this artifact created who I am today. And the idea that you would leave artifacts about other people's stories and other people's way of life and other people's authentic experience out in the world for them is the way that I prefer to give back creatively. It's beautiful because genre cinema is truly for every single outsider, uh, no matter who the most vocal people of certain crowds are. So thank you for that. So let's get dig into special features. What are some of the bigger titles you've worked on and what are some of your favorite titles you've worked on? Oh my, so I, I tell people that I've worked from like last year in Maiden Bar all the way to Slugs. I always tell the story of Slugs for Arrow because that's what I was working with Mike Felsher from Red Shirt Pictures and he wanted me to find the special effects artist. And I tried a little bit and I couldn't really get him and Mike said, don't worry about it. And I said, no, man, I'm gonna really try to get him. So through searching online and then also reaching out to FX groups and people, I was able to find some folks that worked on slugs and they knew other people who worked on slugs that literally lived three, like in a three block radius of each other. <laughs> so we were able to suck up all the slug content possible, but that's what it means. It's like you could spend your time doing like a two and a half interview for last year in Maiden Bar and Priest for Kino Lober, but you must also spend that detailed amount of time for these cult genre films. Because I think the idea of like the below the line, the process, the process of making this highly complex art all those stories need to be told before they're lost forever. And I think with the older genre stuff, it's even more important because, you know, with the bigger films, like there's there's a lot more history there. You can look people up and you've seen a lot more of their films. But a lot of these people, sometimes it's, you know, a couple small little regional films and then they're lost, you know. So it's great to keep those stories preserved in, in the way you do it. So we got Slugs. One of my favorites I think you're credited on is My Boyfriend's Back. Did you work on that disc? I did work on that for uh, for Kino Lober. When that came to me, there's two times. So I work with Frank from Kino Lober and there's been two times like off in left field titles have came to me and I was so happy to get them. One was My Boyfriend's Back and one is Cabin Boy. It was Woo! like- All hail Heather Buckley. That's right. You heard the record scratch and it's like, <laughs> excuse me, My Boyfriend's Back. I get to talk to the Bob Balaban. Oh. It's such a great film. It's so good. And you guys it, preserve it so beautifully. Like if someone stumbles upon this disc or Cabin Boy in 30 years, they have the whole package, the whole story. It's true. I, I remember when uh, Chris Elliott was going to come onto the phone call. We're at the keynote meeting and I was like, everybody be chill. Chris <laughs> Elliott going to come on the phone. It's much, it's much too exciting. But I love that movie. I used to watch that movie with my sister all the time. It's a great movie. That movie is so crazy. And that transfer, holy shit. Anyway. I mentioned for my boyfriend's back, I was very excited to interview Austin Pendleton because if there's any like tried and true character actors in these in these movies, I will travel far and wide and be very exciting. Yeah. I remember for uh, Demon Knight flying down in person to interview John Chuck because he's one of my favorite character actors because he's just in that movie for a second. But his view on how a character actor 
they come into the scene they have sort of a little physical shorthand because they're not there that long uh, we, we talked about him working for altman and how things were recorded on set that was a special character actor blessing christopher lloyd for buckaroo bonsai so i just talked to him at south by southwest that i was asked to do his intro for I'm not a serial killer at IFC Center. That was way before the way before the plague. And then before that is when I flew out to LA to interview Christopher Lloyd. And it was amazing. And after the interview, you know, after the interview's done, you get like your one-on-one time to talk about how it was to blow up the Starship Enterprise. And the gleam in his eye when talking <laughs> about like I blew up the Enterprise. Right. This is the moment. <laughs> The moments we live for. Another disc that I loved was Pasolini because that was a three camera setup with Abel Ferrar and Willem Dafoe talking about what Pasolini meant to them, the artist, and then contextualize it into a movie. I started doing that on the thing disc because Michael Felcher asked off the cuff, who's going to interview John Carpenter? And I was like, I know who should interview John Carpenter, Mick Garris. And that was the first time we did sort of an in-conversation with, and I believe that was done with two cameras. So I either for those methods do the one locked off and one rolling, but for Abel Farrar and William Defoe, we did uh, the one locked off shot and two rolling on the side. So it's very cool to cut into that conversation and be a part of it. And I was just sort of like standing on the sidelines, like throwing out topics. And how long is that uh, conversation? Which uh, company put that one out? That was Pino Lober put out Pasolini. And that was some something that I asked for by name is that I actually, because I, I love, I work, for, I work for Frank there. And I saw that it was on the list and I just asked, it's like, oh, can I moderate the Q&A? And moderating the Q&A, Kikam was like, just let Heather, let Heather produce the disc. So I also like when I produced that shoot, I also then did the uh, the live Q&A at the Metrograph for that movie with awesome. Abel and Wilm. It was amazing. Wow. There was such fun energy to do that. But I love Ferrara's film, so it was very blessed. The one guy yeah. that I love to interview is that I'm I'm always bugging people. It's like, can we get Martin Scorsese involved in this at all? I think Martin Scorsese would want to talk about Ninth Configuration. So I would, I, that, that's like my dream. It's like, get well, and he, and he appreciates horror films, so surely he'll come up at some point. He does you don't want him to talk about the classics? You want you want to go very like b-side very deep get in there that's why i thought it would be interesting because i did reach out to his team to see if he wanted to even like write liner notes or just talk about or film something about ninth configuration because i feel like having him speak about catholicism compassion vietnam vets in, in yeah. a crazy one of my favorite films uh ever that's one of the times that i work with david gregory from severin i'm now doing a whole bunch of titles with him now just released was Grizzly and Day of the Animals. And I was able to find eight millimeter footage of behind the scenes of Grizzly. How did you do that, Heather? Through the network of horror. So I asked Dave from Wonderfest, who also does the Rondos, because he focuses on on sort of local filmmakers in the in that area. I, t- I talked to him and it's like, I'm doing a William Girdler, give me some information. And he mentioned this guy, Pat Kelly. And he was saying, oh, who is it? The Portland, Oregon Film Festival, my friend Gwen's film festival, he spoke there. So he said, you should go talk to Gwen. So I talked to Gwen about Pat Kelly. She put me in touch with him. And then he's never really like got on camera, talked in long form about it officially on any disc. So David did his 
audio interview and he had like he lost a lot of the eight millimeter behind the scenes because of a flood but he had a few of them left and he, he sent it to severin of course like they take care of it as if this is like and it is like a, a blessed sacrament a sacred thing that you have eight millimeter footage from a movie from the late 70s artifacts like that are so rare to come by even the early 80s movies when i when i saw some of the vhs hand done stop motion this stuff that's on the thing of the Blair monster. It's like when you see that, the old technology capturing it, it's just incredible. And it's incredible that there's a pathway through the genre community to make these connections, to make these discs and their stories. Because I've said it before, I think the first time I said it when I got a Rondo for the work that I did with uh, Mike on Army of Darkness, that it really is People saying yes, people taking the time out of their day, people like digging around in like boxes that they, they have no idea that they just found on this, this new blue for Severin when the director finds like a hundred behind the scenes photos, like slides that, that they didn't even know that they had or existed. That care, because like I, as a producer who did The Ranger, Al Adamson, I talked to producers that movies are like, 30 and 40 years old, and it's still their movies. They're still, to, still there to talk about it, to connect you with other people. It's almost like being a mother and father. It's like, you don't stop being a mother and father to this film. You're forever with those with those titles. And it's through their generosity, we have these stories. So how, how are you able to track down some people who may have moved on from the industry very early? Because the 80s genre community really ate up young actresses and spit them out quickly. And many of them aren't even in the vicinity of the film industry right now. How do you track those types of folks down? Well, some of it is the black arts. A lot of that came down to on David Gregory's Al Adamson doc, because a lot of those folks are off the grid. So what you do is that you look on IMDb, of course, is there any, is there any listing? What was the last movie they made? If it's recent, you start contacting people from their crew. You go to LinkedIn, you go to Facebook, you look in your mutuals and you go like, I need this special effects artist. Who else is friends with them? Who else is going to put like the secret handshake in to see if I could get that on-camera interview? So that's part of ways of finding them. Also, there's the Academy Film Library that sometimes have people's contacts. And you can also talk to the union. And either you send them a letter or you can get a direct contact if they're still in the union. And there's other like public record search ways of finding people, which is sort of the, the last bastion of the dark arts to find people. But it's all for a good cause because a lot of it's talking about these cult movies, these stories that you don't want to be lost in time. Well, if you need a side hustle, Heather, detective, just think about it. Well, I, for the Al Adamson doc, I also did all the true crime producing. So I know how to hire a PI and how to talk to like wardens at prisons. I see a bright future. Well, in producing as well, obviously. Um, so can you talk a bit about the candor that time brings to some of your interview subjects? Because it's common practice for on a media tour when a movie first comes out for everybody to say, the nicest canned statements possible. How long do you think it takes before people have the separation to really be able to assess their product for what it is and to have the confidence to tell behind the scenes stories that might not portray some people in the best light? I think talking, I'm gonna answer your question in a, in, in a different way. Sure. Is that if you're a wonderful filmmaker who has treated your casting crew like gold, they will respond 20 to 30 years after a fact and go, I need to talk about this movie more than anything else on earth. 
I love the director. It was a very important experience on this unnamed title of working with uh, Severin Films. The cast and crew loved the director so much that within a week, I had a lot of interviews booked. The other film was Buckaroo Banzai. As soon as I put out the request for interview, within two days, everybody was blowing up my phone. It's like, I love this movie. I love this experience. So make sure if you want folks to talk about your film 20 to 30 years from now, make sure you keep a great set. But I feel people want to talk about the good times. They want to talk about the process. They want to talk about working closely with one another. I think if they've had a bad shot, they don't want to talk about it unless you buy the disc from Shout Factory of the making of Bordello of Blood because that commentary and those extras are incredibly candid. Yeah, because it sometimes sneaks in. Like, you're right. Sometimes there'll be a lot of uh, family bonding stories, and those are great. But, I mean, it's not like I like to hear the dirt, but I really like to hear about the poor conditions sometimes and maybe some of the actors not even necessarily liking the end result of the process because it, it brings kind of this honesty um, perspective and yeah. perspective to it. Because, yeah, you like everyone reveres this film and then there would be actors like, I don't even like, like horror films or I'm just in it or, you know, I don't even yeah, like I'm thinking know about Michael, it has a following. I'm thinking of Michael Bean on the fan disc. There's an interview with Michael Bean on the Shout Factory of the fan where you're like, this is what it's like to make movies. Like, wow, he's really telling you exactly what the set was like. Heather, I just want to... Uh, kind of shift gears a little bit or expand maybe not just the interview process but like in terms of the actual extras on a disc like is that kind of mapped out ahead of time you mentioned kind of finding the footage for Grizzly and that actually I heard them mention that on the recent Severin podcast as well too but like do they have sort of a listing of these are the features we're going to put on there or is it more like you during the interviews you're like sifting through and asking you know if there's any existing footage from any of these parties that they might have some lost you know outtakes or stills or whatever like how do you guys pick the extras that are going to be on the discs i go into deep research the first time i started putting together discs was probably the thing where i work with my writing partner and he's also a, a great researcher ethan halo my friend of just just 20 years and we work on these discs together so we both delve in we do research and i go like what about these people and then you get a sign off and you go do it. So that's what I did for Grizzly and Day of the Animals and a couple others. Sometimes I'm given a list is like, this is who you need to go out to. But something like My Boyfriend's Back or Deep Rising, it's like, that's my spec. And you figure out what departments might have behind the scenes. So your FX group, your VFX group. I got a line from my friend Greg that like ILM keeps all of their behind the scenes process of making movies. So I reached out to ILM for Deep Rising and they said, it's like, do you have a disc? Send us a drive and we'll send you all our stuff back. And that's if you saw the Deep Rising disc where there's all that stop motion work. Because I'll go in because I, as a producer on feature films, I love going into the post process. Like I used to do special effects shop supervision. So as a young Fangorian girl, like those are all our rock stars all the Rick Bakers of the world and Todd Masters and Steve Wang and everyone you want to reach out to are people who are critically important. And then like, I just, that's who like I fangirl over a lot of the FX folks, a lot of the VFX stuff, because I love the technology of creating rubber monsters of creating rotoscope lightning by hand in John Carpenter films. 
All that stuff is critically important to me and I'm endlessly fascinated by that and archiving it. Because I feel a lot of the discs and the stuff that I work on, it does talk about like the auteur, writer, director and their story. But I feel like we also spend a lot of time on process and looking at below the line crew because we're trying to talk about full process. We're trying to talk about the collaboration and making of something so big. Before I was a producer, I took design and graphic design at University Arts in Philadelphia. And that was like a Gestalt Bauhaus way of doing design. And that itself was focusing on process. How do you get things done? How do you manifest something? How do you make sure something manifests? How do you talk about art? And I believe that was a touchstone and why I'm very fascinated in the making of stuff. And I have like my Fangoria's and Gorezones and Toxic Horrors and Slipcases. And I was always archiving since I was a young girl. I would read the Star Ledger and I would cut all the stuff out of the newspaper. I have old TV guides. And, you know, during my sleepovers, I would bring my little horror tapes. Like, what girl has like a dub copy of Brendan Hughes into Die For showing their little friends or like Chainsaw 2? But that was me. That's what I was doing. So if there's any cool things, the idea was always to share it. If there is like a great story you heard, you want to share it. If there's a great IP story or narrative that's authentic and the world needs to hear about it, you share it. So I always feel that it's part of my actual being to always like move things out into the world. Because again, like at the beginning of the conversation, because of like philosophy, music, movies, like all those are all the things that made me. I mean, I would have not known about punk rock music if I did not happen to rent Fear No Evil on VHS. So all those little artifacts and stuff that you've kept over the years, have any of those ever made it into any of the discs, like in, like a still in one of the interviews or something like that? They have not. So I went to school for graphic design and I was not really focused on moving into a, a, a film career. It's something that didn't dawn upon me when I was going to University of Arts. But when I was a little girl, I swore to myself, it's like, you need to buy all these books. You need to have this library because one day you're going to have to write about film. And motherfucker, like I would go into to write for Dread Central and Fangoria and Diabolique, which is wild because I was just like out in general populations and Uncle Creepy was like, please write for us. Like many, many years ago in, in, in Dread Central. And then I started doing a lot more interviews because I love sitting there and sort of navigating those conversations and getting those duels and inspiration to share with the world. We just had uh, Steve Kostansky on the podcast and he was talking about how important these types of honest stories are to convey how the filmmaking process is so that people aren't just dreaming about it, they actually can see a path themselves and how important special features were to motivating him as a filmmaker. So it's really nice. I do that tell that to some of the folks that we reach out to if they're thinking about it or if they wonder about the importance. And I said, like, people time and time again have said, like, this is their film school. This is their film school, how to put stuff together. And I would swear, listening to some of the commentaries, the way that they talked about, like, cross-disciplinary communication, working as a team, a lot of that stuff when I would listen to it was sort of wax on, wax off when I was a creative lead in advertising. Cause I thought it's like, let's bring all, they're not keys, but like all the department heads up first, let's make sure we collaborate, make sure we cross pollinate and sort of do it in real time to create something that's much more robust and nuanced than ourselves. I mean, that was my first uh, vibe into collaboration. Cause I always tell people, you may be the best artist in the world, but if we put you in a room with other great artists, the work only elevates, which I think why I love collaboration when it comes to film, 
because mm-hmm. you know, the right collaborators, the work will always be better. And you'll struggle and you're like, no, I'm an auteur, nor this is a singular vision. It is truly the hands of many that lift the story up. And I also believe that I feel that way because I come from a working class family. My mother was a teacher. My father was a construction worker for PATH for, for 30 years and a Vietnam vet. And, you know, I have a lot of those traits as maybe someone like a foreman who just wants to make sure like the workers are taken care of. Is it a safe set? Is everyone being heard? Does everyone have what they need? So it's that sort of like leadership, almost like from the bottom, like holding up, like holding people up. I've always felt is that's how I worked in advertising. And that's how I'm a producer in film. It's like, what do you need to be your best? Because everyone wants to be their best. Everyone wants to be heroic. You just need to give them space and the tools to succeed. Very well said. Okay, last one, Heather. And we don't expect you to be a futurist by any means with this question, but the media is telling us the DVD industry is dying, but my bank account's telling me that uh, the Blu-ray industry is thriving. What do you see as the future of the physical media market? It's hard for me to predict, but I feel since we still see a huge sale in cassette tapes, And in record players, I feel that some sort of physical media will always be with us, even if it's for the collector's market. Because I feel a lot of the stuff that I do is for the collector's market. Also, if it's on disc and you have like a 4K OLED like myself, there's no lossless ability. Like direct disc to screen, gorgeous. You don't really get that quality or I've seen in my area with streaming. Now, because I love access to all my content, so I love screening stuff. I love streaming stuff. I love going on Tubi, which is the mom and pop VHS store of our day, but having physical versions of it, because this is what I run into all the time. I want to show someone a movie. I'm away from my collection and every single movie I want to show them, I have to pay for. So if I have to pay like three to $7 for a movie, I'm just going to buy the physical media version. And so I'm able to share it with other people. Well, my friends have complained. It's like, how come every movie you like, we have to rent? And that's just why I just buy them. Because it's like, if I need to bring over some of the like Hallmark classics, like Solo, I have it on disc. Anytime, it's like, let me come over. We're going to watch some atrocities together. <laughs> well, thanks for fighting the good fight. Uh, I know many people appreciate your hard work. And I hope that that Adamson said is put in a time capsule for aliens to unearth and see how people made movies back in their day. So thanks again for being with us, Heather. And where can people find uh, more information about what you're working on? They can go to my IMDb. It sort of lists all the credits that I've done. They can find me on Facebook. They can find me on Twitter and Instagram. My Facebook is Joe Spinell Lives. And then all the other social media is like underscore Heather Buckley, where they can hear me talk about funding women's movies and ghoulies. On that note, can you tell me if Ghoulies 3 or The Giver 2 will be getting Blu-ray releases? Not to my knowledge, but those are both classics. I even say it on like phone calls because a lot of the stuff on my slate is very elevated. I want I always want to set people straight. It's like these are the stories I want to tell in this style. This in no this in no way means I don't love Ghoulies 2 or Terror Vision. Have you seen the Ghoulies 3 on uh, Tubi? It's like an amazing like 4K scan or something. It's like the most beautiful transfer <laughs> yes, on there. <laughs> transferred off VHS, but I haven't seen it. I know if it says anything about the Ghoulies franchise, 
one and two are on the uh, the HBO Max. And I yes, I did hear that the third one is on Tubi, but I haven't revisited. I've also never seen four. So maybe I can watch it there in the apocalypse or maybe in my old age, I could savor Ghoulies 4. Don't watch for it. You're good. It's just guys in suits. It's not nearly as fun as all the little animatronic puppety rubbery guys. Well, thanks again, Heather. We'll have you out to the festival once the world reopens. Awesome, man. Have a great cool. day. M M Mail day! <laughs> Best day of the week, man. Yep. All right, Rat. What sweet new shit you got? You kick it off this week. Sure. I got some uh, good stuff to me anyway. I don't know if it's good to anyone else. This one's an old video store favorite that I've wanted to, to watch again for so many years. It has been out of print for a long time or like a really dingy old DVD. But it is Mikey from MVD Rewind Collection. I love these MVD rewinds. They always have like so many special features. They're like full length docs. And they always, every cover always has different stickers and stuff from that video store era. So it feels so in, in touch. Yeah, man. And this one was a video store classic. Yeah, Mikey, it's like about to, you know. No, I think the log line says it all. What is it again? You've heard of. Remember, Jason and Freddie were kids once too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Except they spelled Freddy I-E because Freddy's trademarked, so they didn't want to get sued oh. by <laughs> So it's spelled wrong, and they kept that wrong spelling on here. But anyway, MVD discs have a ton of extras. Super excited to watch this again. It's like the little Yeah, as I remember, this film's uh, like the first half of Rob Zombie's Halloween. Yeah, basically, the origin story, yeah. But with the kid from Blank Check. So, like, the <laughs> nicest looking kid, the kindest little soul, and then he's taking uh, steel balls and slingshotting them into people's faces and, you know, killing everyone in his path in order to uh, have a nice tryst with Josie Bissett. So, <laughs> well, I might have done the same thing. Up. <laughs> I hope it holds up, Ready? Me too. All right, I got a forecast I've been looking forward to for a while. This is coming from Severin Films, Perdita Durango from Alex de la Iglesia. I'm impressed you pronounced all that properly. Yeah, I think I got that right. I adore this film and I have deep roots with this film and a close friend of mine, Mr. Trevor Griffith, because we bonded over him having bootleg DVDs of Perdita Durango and Day of the Beast when we first met. And that was the first time I got to see both of those amazing films in extremely bad transfers. And to be able to watch them again in 4K is going to be a dream. I cheated, I popped this one in. It was stunning. It was as though I was watching this thing on 70 millimeter. Beautiful film, still extremely crazy, uh, written by Barry Gifford. As you may know, wrote Wild at Heart. This is essentially a Mexican Wild at Heart, nice. but dialed to 11. Nonstop sex and violence, definitely pick it up. Haven't even delved into the special features yet, but I'm stoked. But I like this. This movie's still living in my head. It's, uh, yeah, Natural Born Killers-ish, but it's very sensual and artistic. And a huge cast, James Gandolfini, Rosie Perez. Oh, Rosie Perez, like, such a favorite of mine. and never gets the respect she deserves. She was nominated for, like, Fearless or something like that, some random show, but, like... White man can't jump. She's oh, so yeah. good. She's 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 a great actress, and the name the title of the film is named after her character, Perdita oh, so Durango. She's, she's the lead. Yeah. So definitely check it out. Uh, terrible slip art, though. Really bad. Oh, it does look very flimsy and cheap, and it's already damaged. Yeah, and it <laughs> just and, got it. And the artwork looks like a decal on like a hot rod in Las Vegas or something. <laughs> yeah. Does not sell the movie, but. I'm trying to sell you the movie. It owns. What do you got next, Rhett? Oh, you, you you gave me hell for not having enough cuff stuff. So I 
picked up the peanut butter solution, not the Severin release, but the actual Canadian release. I'm supporting local here. And uh, I'm super excited to see it in HD after seeing it at Cuff. When was that? What, a few years ago? I don't remember. I know we showed it on 35mm, and I remember it was very early, and I spoke too closely to the mic and scared a lot of kids, but the movie scared them even more. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's one of the wildest Canadian films you'll ever see. I loved, I adore it. Uh, when I was a young kid in French immersion school, they'd often show, you know, Quebecois films so we could get experience with French culture. And so this is one of the first films I saw, and I was just like... <laughs> You know, is, is Quebec that weird? Like, are, are we that weird as Canadians? And I'm glad we, we kind of are, but we, we kind of keep it close to the vest. But Now, this producer yeah. did some other films like this as well. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So it's part of the Tales for All series. Uh, and they're all equally very, very bizarre and weird. Tommy Tricker, the stamp collector, and the dog who stopped the war. Uh, yeah, just all these films that are very, very inventive and have this crazy whimsy to it, this French wild spirit that they have that uh, doesn't get seen enough. They haven't really released any box sets or any stuff of, of most of their films. So it's, you know, this is at least maybe a gateway to that. It's supposed to be a really nice new scan of the, of, of the film. It's got telefilm support behind it. So really excited to watch uh, the, this Blu-ray of it. Yeah, and when people ever ask me why are Canadians so weird, I always say, oh, the peanut butter solution. We all watch the peanut butter solution way too much. Yeah, and if anyone's seen it or if you're wondering what the heck we're talking about here, it's basically a kid gets frightened by, you know, seeing something outside and then all his hair falls out. And so they concoct this peanut butter solution that they put, you're supposed to put on your scalp to grow hair. But one of the inventive friends of his puts that peanut butter solution in places that would maybe aid his uh, maturity. <laughs> and he starts to grow hair in, in, in the craziest of places. And then this, yeah, I don't want to ruin too much of it, but it's crazy. Yeah. All right, my turn. Another 4K, and it's an about time 4K, baby. Mm. Dawn of the Dead, George Romero's classic, one of the greatest films of all time. From second run in the UK, this is an all-region 4K disc. Comes with three cuts of the movie. I only ever watched the director's cut, uh, the can cut, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to watch the Argento cut. I've never seen the Argento cut. Oh, I like the Argento cut. I mean, it's a completely different beast. It's probably a bastardization of his vision, but it feels like another, like, demons, or it feels like it's got that crazy kind of synthy, like, fa fast-paced, action-driven thing that they took out of this, you know, two, over two-hour movie. Yeah, and so they did. They have 4K UHDs of all three cuts. And then the fourth disc contains all of the special features you know and love from the previous release of Dawn of the Dead. But it includes... So many new interviews. It looks like there's over four hours of new interviews on here and two different cuts of Document of the Dead with commentary. Wow. So I don't think I'll ever need to own another copy of Dawn of the Dead, but I said that the last time when I bought that Ultimate DVD set, which I've just upgraded. I still hold on to that. That's, you know, Michael Felcher was the brainchild behind that one for Red Shirt Pictures, and that has a big, strong place in my heart. Actually, the most viewed DVD review I ever made. It was like over like 50,000 views on that. Because you were the first one to go through every feature on that set. So kudos <laughs> yeah, I spent to you. about a week doing it. I remember. I didn't talk to you that whole week, and I was so jealous. <laughs> and if you ask me, and no one will, my favorite cut is the, is the theatrical cut. I find the director's cut, you know, it's like another eight minutes or so. Just a little, like... I love the library story. music in the director's cut, in the can cut. It's not in the theatrical No, there's way more mall music. Oh, okay. There's way more zombie just wandering to mall music in the can cut. 
Okay, well, it's the one I've like come that. to love. Okay. What you can't you go wrong, any either. Seriously, of the unless you watch the remake. Uh, what do you got next, Rhett? Oh, Zack Snyder, boom! <laughs> I like Zack Snyder. I just think it's a bad movie. <laughs> I actually like it's not bad. The Burt Reynolds part with the holding the sign. That's up. a great scene, and the first act with Sarah Pauli is amazing. The rest of it is trite. Yeah, and, Zombie uh, Baby, I could do without that and being rain. And there's so, some lazy yeah. CG, some really bad jokes, some lazy writing. The cliffhanger at the end's very bad. I'm sure it doesn't hold up. I haven't seen no. it since the theater's there. But. Snyder Cut, Justice League, it ain't. What's your last one, Rhett? One that holds up, it's Criterion. And I've been really into Pier Paolo Pasolini's films lately. And so I decided to fill a huge hole in my collection and get the Trilogy of Life, which includes the Decameron, uh, Canterbury Tales, and Arabian Nights. What I really like about all of his films, really, but specifically these three films, is the way he normalizes sexuality and nudity in a way that just feels very natural and um, provocative in a way, but also just uh, refreshing to see to see that candor when you usually, you know, films really cut around that sort of stuff. But just, you know, this treats all these stories about love and, and coming of age and just treats it in the most frank possible way. It's not this, like, frat sex hijink stuff you usually get or this dark, seductive kind of quality. It's just like, yeah, here's n naked people who love each other. Why not? So great, great films. I'm excited to check them out. There's a lot of extras on this, and it's just a really beautifully packaged set and all that kind of soft cardboard uh, that Criterion likes to do sometimes. So excited to check it out. Yeah, later Pasolini's definitely a blank spot for me. I've seen his neorealistic stuff, uh, Mama Roma, Acetone, Acetone, however you want to pronounce it. <laughs> but uh, what, what differentiates this from his neorealism stuff? Well, and, and I was worried initially uh, that because I'm not a big, you know, costume drama person, more of a realist, so, and that's what I love about his films, right? But uh, these ones take these fantastical stories like Arabian Nights, like, you know, Alibaba and that, those kinds of stories, but takes away most of the mis mystique to it or the period drama to it and makes it more just as if a proletariat filmmaker is just making stuff with the everyday working class people. It's like we're just right So he still there. embraces so the realism. So it's really dirty and all the locations are like natural, like no sets and stuff. He really went to like all the different countries here to film these different films. So they just have a real organic, natural quality to them. But like they feel like kind of like like a little bit of an exploitation film. Like they don't feel like really high brow. They feel super low brow, but he's got such a poetic eye that it comes out still. But I don't know, it's, for me, it feels, super, it, they're super accessible if you're not like into like big old period biopics and epics, you know? I love rambunctious auteurs. Yeah. And on that note, I oh, have a box nice set nice of a rambunctious auteur also from Criterion. This is the Ooh. world of Wong Kar Wai. That Wong is Kar a heavy Wai. Being the filmmaker behind Fallen Angels, Chung King Express, 2046, In the Mood for Love. Fantastic filmmaker, finally getting his due in a complete box set. Many of these films being available on Blu-ray for the very first time. The packaging for this thing is beautiful. It looks like a love letter written to you. You open the love letter. Oh, wow. And it just gets more bizarre. Like Wong Kar Wai's work himself. The more you uncover it, the more deep it gets. Look at this packaging, it's so strange. <laughs> it like, it's like an accordion. It's like origami. <laughs> yeah, and then inside, they hide little things. Throughout the packaging, there's little hidden notes. What, really? Yeah, and then in this beautiful book. Like a note, like a piece look, of paper. Flip through this. And then through all these little oh, gaps up there. what? 
There's little like love little letters. Easter eggs and stuff, yeah. Yeah, beautiful packaging Holy for beautiful cow. films. Um, this release is somewhat controversial as when restoring, doing the 4K restorations of these films, the director tampered with them as oh, no. directors are prone to do. What did they do? He George lucas them. Uh, some of the changes aren't so noticeable. It'll be small scenes removed from his earlier films that they couldn't find the proper elements for, but it was just like a dialogue scene that he was fine without. But some of them are completely new color timings. Some of them are new aspect ratio. What? Really? But I, he's done it so that this package is a definitive package. All of the films feel like one lucid dream, similar to how Snyder's going back to redo the aspect ratio of uh, his Batman vs. Superman film. Wong has the similar idea. He wants these films to feel in the same universe, and so he's gone back and timed them so that they feel more similar to each other, it sounds like. So they all they all have the same look and they have the same aspect ratio? I'm not, I'm not, I mean, I can't speak, I haven't seen it yet, but it doesn't sound like they all have the same look. They're still separate films, but all within the world of Wong Kar Wai. Oh. So very excited to dig into this, um, Chunking Express being a personal favorite. Cool, yeah, I mean, it's always a, kind of a risky endeavor when you play around. As long as, for me, as long as you have access to the unaltered stuff, then then yeah, but otherwise, I don't know. It's true, I mean, it, it backfires. I remember the new color grade that uh, Friedkin did for that Blu-ray of French Connection looked like dog shit, like, <laughs> like literally, like they smeared dog shit on it. Yeah. Um, when that film is supposed to look like a documentary. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was like wanting to make it look like Moby Dick. I'm like, what? Yeah. <laughs> it has like nothing every, to do with Moby every Dick. Every interview with Friedkin is talking about how he embraced his documentary fly-by-night nature on that movie, and now he's saying he wants it to look like Moby Dick. Technicolor Moby Dick. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> Something tells me he just wanted a job. But uh, yeah. uh, I've read reviews of this set, and it sounds like the color timings on here are... Uh, they feel authentic, and by no means do they feel McClunkied. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm excited to check it out. What a beautiful package, though. Yeah, man. Next Criterion sale. Thanks for joining us, everyone, for our third episode, first episode post-festival. I'm a little exhausted, definitely inspired. I hope y'all are inspired from those interviews with Colin Geddes and Heather Buckley. I, I learned a lot, and I definitely want to have Colin and Heather both back. Yeah, I feel like we could have went at least another hour with each. I didn't get a chance to geek out enough. Yeah, seriously, these uh, two are so inspirational and so well-informed on all things genre film related. And I really want to thank both Heather and Colin for taking the time to speak with us. CuffCast is now available on all of your favorite pod services. I subscribe on Spotify. Where are you subscribing, Rhett? iTunes. iTunes. I'm playing Jane iTunes for me. Yeah. And uh, we got the RSS feed oh. you can subscribe to, or you can just go from the Cuff page. I'm not sure how you're listening to this, but uh, we've been having a great time making this. And uh, just a bit of a teaser for the fourth episode. You're not going to want to miss this. Yeah, we have two titans of Canadian cinema discussing the 10th anniversary of one of the greatest Canadian exploitation films of all time. Mm-hmm. 10 years, that's 2011. What could have come out then? It rhymes with Nobo with a rot bun. <laughs> Stay tuned, folks. <laughs> Let's go.